Susan Cox Powell. She was last seen alive at home in West Valley City, Utah on December 6, 2009. It's widely believed she was murdered by her husband, Josh, and her body was hidden somewhere in the canyons and mountains surrounding that city. But Susan's disappearance is only the beginning of her bizarre and tragic story. It spans multiple states. It goes on for three years, and it includes this sickening tale of perversion and obsession from her father-in-law, two suicides, and the murder of her children at the hands of her twisted husband. I'm Amy. This is my husband, Chris. If you've only got less than an hour, no problem. This is where you're going to get twice the crime in half the time. Yes, and in recap number two, I'm going to tell you about a strange disappearance that led to the discovery of a missing daughter's strange secrets. Phoenix Calden was an accomplished musician and junior fencing champion in her home of Spanish Lake, Missouri, when she mysteriously vanished shortly before Christmas in 2011. In this recap, you're going to hear about the very strange circumstances surrounding her disappearance. Get ready for a double feature that's going to leave you saying, what the what? I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. Susan Powell knew she was in danger. She kept a secret safe deposit box at the bank where she worked. It was filled with evidence she thought might help her in case she needed to grab her sons and escape her marriage to Josh Powell. She also added information for investigators in case her husband did the unthinkable and she disappeared. Inside that safety deposit box was a handwritten transcript of this terrible fight she'd had with her husband, a video inventory of her assets, a journal, and her last will and testament. It was labeled with a warning for family and friends of Susan, all except for Josh Powell, husband. I don't trust him. She told her coworkers she kept a personal journal at work just in case. And if anything happened to her, they should look at Josh. Was he threatening her? She said no, but the way he talked made her nervous. As it turned out, her instincts were 100% right on. Without telling anyone, she wrote out that last will and testament and added it to the other evidence hidden in her office. It starts like this. I bike to work daily and have been having extreme marital stress for about three or four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail at work, which would not be accessible to my husband. Her secret letter revealed two more shocking statements. Josh had taken out life insurance policies on their family, totaling more than $1 million. And then these words, if I die, even if it looks like an accident, it wasn't. And tucked in with the other documents was something even more chilling. This video message from Susan herself. Uh, This is me, July 29th, 2008. It is 12.33, mountain time, Um, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us that our assets are documented, hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. Charlie, say hi. I just remembered 
Oops. Phone's cap on. I just remembered. Beautiful diamond necklace my mom bought. One set of diamond earrings. Another set of diamond earrings. A rigid drill. Some type of rigid sander and a rigid saw. Here's our food supply again. Guess I'll go back in here. Cake. Safe on. Here's our boxes of clothing and stuff. Hold on, Charlie. Stay right there. Hold on. No, no. I have to open this. So stay there. Hold on. Okay, hurry up. Get in. So I can shut the door. Why do you have that stapler? Okay. So. She vanished on December 7th, 2009. But to really understand how tragic her story ends, you need to know how ugly it started. Josh Powell was part of a big Mormon family. He was one of five kids born to Terry and Stephen Powell. The family lived in Puyallup, Washington, where his father worked in real estate, then went into sales for a furniture company. In 1992, when Josh was 16, his parents split up, but the divorce was far from friendly. Court documents include horrifying accusations about Stephen's controlling, manipulative, abusive behavior. Sounds familiar, huh? He kept hardcore porn in the house and regularly showed it to the kids from the time they were as young as six. In the divorce, Terry claimed Stephen kept a journal with explicit sexual fantasies he had about a mutual friend of theirs they knew from church. He wanted to marry the woman and raise her children should anything happen to the woman's husband. This is a fantasy he talked about with Terry. He even asked her how she'd feel about it if he took a second wife. He egged his sons on to kick her. She told the courts Josh threatened her with a butcher knife after she asked him to do the dishes. And his rage didn't end with his mother. He tried to hang himself. His sister Jennifer remembers a time when Josh stabbed a pet gerbil to death. In November 2000, he met Susan at a singles event hosted by the Mormon Church. He was 24, she was 19. Only two months later, they were engaged. By April 2001, they were married. At first, they lived in Josh's apartment while Josh tried and failed at a variety of jobs, including real estate. Then they moved in with his dad to save money. Stephen already had a fascination with his daughter-in-law, but having her so close in the same house, that took his sick obsession to a new level. He trailed her with a camcorder. He secretly followed her on errands and took thousands of pictures and hundreds of hours of video of her and himself doing the most twisted things, like smelling her underwear masturbating to pictures of her, secretly recording her in the bathroom. Later, police found bizarre mementos he saved. I'm talking things like her tampons, used waxing strips, cotton balls with nail polish she removed, and other garbage, all carefully saved in plastic baggies and labeled with the date he found them. He convinced himself that those were love tokens that Susan meant for him to keep. 
In 2003, he told her he loved her. He wanted their affair, in his words, to be out in the open. Susan told friends her father-in-law was a disgusting, perverted, evil man. She complained that he was obsessed with her, and he'd even tried groping her in front of Josh, but her husband wouldn't say a word against him. He just said, hey, that's my dad. Don't overreact. By 2004, she couldn't take living with Stephen anymore. She convinced Josh to move to West Valley City, Utah for a fresh start and the chance for Josh to rekindle a relationship with his mother and sister, Jennifer. They both lived there. In 2005, her son Charlie was born and Brayden followed soon after in 2007. Now, Susan's friends say everyone loves Susan and they put up with Josh. He was selfish, controlling, and overbearing while Susan was sweet and outgoing and lived to make people happy and comfortable. In emails and conversations with friends, Susan said she thought Josh started to change for the worse when Charlie was born. In an interview with the ID channel, her father remembered trying to convince Josh to come to the hospital with Susan when she had the baby. Josh told them he'd catch up because he was busy. And even when he got there, Two hours later, he brought his laptop. He had to be forced to go to Susan's bedside and hold her hand. And from there, his behavior got stranger over the next few years. More controlling, more explosive, more vicious. But Susan believed Josh could change. She thought if she could just get him into counseling and get herself into therapy, she could single-handedly turn their marriage around. But she was also realistic. She gave herself an ultimatum. If Josh didn't shape up by their anniversary in April 2010, she was going to leave him. Well, unbeknownst to her, get this, Josh was already dating at least one other woman. According to police files obtained by the Seattle Times, Josh met a woman on a dating site in October 2009 or thereabouts. She knew him by the name John Staley, and she didn't figure out who he really was until she heard about Susan's disappearance on the news. So this wasn't just some internet romance. She was sleeping with Josh for a couple of months, and she told police he'd given her at least $800 over the course of their relationship. (laughs) Meanwhile, at home, Josh was ruling his wife and kids with an iron fist. He couldn't hold down a job as an IT professional, but he controlled Susan's paycheck to the point where he'd changed the PIN code so she couldn't take out money for even for groceries from their joint account. Instead, he gave her an allowance of less than $20 a week to feed herself and their two little boys. She wasn't even allowed to buy basic necessities. When she tried to buy socks, he told her to knit them instead. He had bizarre reasons to explain why their marriage was on the rocks and how she could fix it. If Susan made food for him and he had good food in his stomach, then their marriage would be fixed. Meanwhile, he spent her money on junk food for himself, but wouldn't allow Susan or his sons to eat any. He told her the Republicans, the economy, and the environment were the reason their marriage was broken. And that's why he was so mean and hurtful. He called her a religious fanatic when she begged him to let her have some of the money that she'd earned so she could tithe at church. He told her, if you pay tithing when you're not supposed to, you're going to hell. And he said something else that made her so afraid, she locked herself in a closet and threatened to call the police. 
He warned her that if she tried to divorce him, he'd ruin her, and her sons would grow up without a mother or a father. According to her sister, he told her over and over that they'd both be dead before he let her take his sons. On the advice of a divorce lawyer, in July 2008, she secretly started documenting their assets. She's walking through their house and garage. She pointed out the hundreds of items Josh squandered the family's money on. Expensive tools, computer gear, even an electric bike. He bought hundreds of pounds of wheat for what he called their food supply. By 2007, he'd wasted more than $200,000, and they were forced to declare bankruptcy. Six months later, when their debt was discharged, the first thing he did was go to Home Depot and open a credit card in Susan's name. He bought $1,000 worth of tools with names and serial numbers recorded in a spreadsheet. He kept that encrypted, and then he later tried to delete it after her disappearance. So this is interesting. According to a theory laid out by Dave Colley, he's the host of KSL's investigative podcast about this case called Cold. The impact driver sold with the toolkit he bought at Home Depot may very well be what he used to murder Susan on Sunday, December 6, 2009. Susan took the boys to church that day. Josh stayed home like he always did. A friend of hers came over after church so they could knit together. Now, that afternoon, Josh was uncharacteristically helpful. Instead of staying in his basement office working on his computer like he usually did, he offered to make pancakes for lunch. After serving everyone, he cleaned the kitchen. A short time later, Susan told her friends she was tired and she needed to lay down. That was about five o'clock. As her friend was leaving, she heard Josh say he was taking the boys sledding. That was the last time anyone outside the family saw Susan. The next morning, that was a Monday, when Charlie and Brayden didn't show up at daycare, the babysitter reached out to Josh's sister because Susan and Josh weren't answering their phones or her knock at their door. She was worried something might have happened to them. Jennifer couldn't get Josh or Susan on the phone either, so she called her mother and her mother called the police. When the police got to the house, they broke the living room window to get inside to see if anyone was hurt. Well, no one was home, but they did find something unexpected. Two big box fans were set up and blowing directly onto a wet area on the living room couch. They also found a spray of blood droplets on the tile floor near the couch. Susan's purse, wallet, and keys were in the bedroom. Nothing else seemed out of the ordinary. So let's go back to Dave Colley's theory about that murder weapon, just for a minute. Based on his research, he believes Josh dosed Susan's pancakes with some sort of sedative, then used the driver from the tool set to knock her out or kill her on the living room couch. Then he cleaned the blood, leaving the couch wet, but in his hurry, he overlooked those small blood spatters on the tile. Blood, which the police later identified as Susan's. Then, after midnight in the early morning hours of Monday, December 7th, he bundled Susan and the boys into the van and left to go camping at Simpson Springs in Utah's West Desert. That's where he told everyone he went once he finally started answering his phone later that day. But before he drove home to deal with the friends, family, and the police, he did something else bizarre. He turned around and drove about 20 minutes back out of town, and then he called Susan. 
He left her a voicemail saying he and the boys were on the way home and he hoped she got to work okay that morning. Yeah, keep in mind he'd already been told that Susan was missing and the police were waiting for him at his house. But he still didn't go home. After he called her, he drove to the bank where she worked and left a second message on her cell phone. This one let her know that he was out front to pick her up, like, you know, like he always did. Then he he left for home. When he pulled into the driveway, the detective asked him why he didn't answer the phone. Josh told him he forgot his charger and he was trying to conserve his battery, but his phone charger was sitting right there on the center console. When they looked through his van, with his permission, they found Susan's cell, but it was missing the SIM card. He said he forgot he had her phone. They also found a generator, blanket, gas can, tarps, a shovel, and a bunch of unopened camping gear. Police interviewed Josh for an hour that day. They were trying to figure out where his missing wife could be. But instead of trying to help them find Susan, he spent most of the conversation complaining about his broken living room window. He was acting suspicious and, well, just plain weird, but the police didn't feel like they had enough evidence to get a search warrant at that time. So they let him go under the condition that he come back the next day for an official interview. Josh got to his second police interview four hours late, and the conversation didn't go well. He told them Susan stayed home while he took his kids camping after midnight on Sunday because that's the kind of thing they do all the time. And when the police pointed out that a winter storm was coming in and the temperatures were below freezing and he had work the next morning, he told them "Eh, he forgot it was Monday and he wanted to test out his new generator. And he stuck to that story. He said the last time he saw Susan was around midnight on Sunday when he and the boys left her at home sleeping. But while he was stonewalling the detectives, his four-year-old son, Charlie, was telling a different story about that night. Where were you camping at? Um, I was camping at Dinosaur National Park. Dinosaur Park? Dinosaur National Park. Dinosaur National Park. Who were you camping with? Um, my dad and my mom and my my little brother. Dad, your mom, and your brother. Yeah. Did you sleep over there? Yeah. Tell me what you did with um your dad while you were camping. Um, Anything fun? Yeah. Um. Well, I was camping. Um. I saw some flowers that didn't look pretty. They didn't? Yeah. You saw some flowers that didn't look pretty? Yeah. Oh. There are no pretty flowers on Dinosaur Park. How did you guys get to where you were camping? Um, we got in the earthquake and the earthquake. You went to an airplane yesterday? Yeah, our airplane brings us to Dinosaur National Park. Okay. Okay, so Charlie, when you guys came home from camping, who came home with you? My dad. And? And my mom stayed at Dinosaur National Park. Your mom stayed there? Yeah. How do you know your mom stayed? Because 
was published on ksl.com as part of the cold podcast they also offered some follow-up information you need to know so dinosaur national park is actually dinosaur national monument and the powell family did go there on a trip but a few months earlier the crystals charlie mentioned could be referring to the dugway geode beds those are near the pony express trail where josh said he was camping with the boys police did search there for susan but didn't find anything In a follow-up interview three months later, Charlie wouldn't talk about it again. In fact, he said, we can't talk about Susan or camping. I always keep things as secrets. Police also searched around Topaz Mountain, which is about 30 miles away from where Josh said they were camping. That's where they found a burned out mine shaft, a place Josh had jokingly told people in the past would make a good place to hide a body. 
Cadaver dogs alerted on the charred wood, but investigators couldn't search any further down the hole, and they couldn't make a DNA connection to Susan from the wood that they were able to gather. But let's get back to Josh on December 8th, 2011, two days after Susan went missing. The police took his phone and got a warrant to search his van and his house again. They finished talking to him before they were done with his van, but instead of waiting a few more minutes for it, Josh left. He took a taxi to the Salt Lake City Airport and he rented a car. He had that car for about 20 hours and he put 807 miles on it. And to this day, no one can say for sure where he went or what he did. But they do know that at some point during that trip, he bought a new phone and he activated it in Tremonton, Utah. That's near the border of Utah and Southern Idaho. They also discovered that Josh took out the SIM card before he gave them his phone. When they searched his house, they took boxes, bags, and computers. And they found some interesting things in his van. Two garbage bags were hidden in a compartment in the floorboard. They were full of kitchen scraps, including some of the pancakes from Sunday night, and burnt remnants of something that they've never been able to confirm, although they think it was either a cell phone, a computer hard drive, or some kind of power tool. Burned sheetrock was also found in the garbage. A burned area on the concrete floor of Josh's garage suggests that he torched something on top of that sheetrock, then threw it all away in the garbage bags that he then hid in his van. So Dave Colley from the Cold Podcast suggested that he might have been trying to destroy the murder weapon. So if you remember, his theory is that Josh used an impact driver on Susan. So to test that theory, he stacked sheetrock and then tried torching a cell phone and a hard drive. Well, neither of those items produced the same kind of damaged evidence found in that garbage. But torching the impact driver did. And if you look at the damage side by side, they appear almost exactly the same. Two days after they searched his house, Josh did this impromptu interview with local KUTV reporter Chris Jones. I've been trying to figure out what I can do so I don't sit idle. Um, dealing with this repeatedly. Sure. Um, I was just going to go in and get my kids because... You know, they're how, how are they? How are they doing? Um, they've been doing good, uh, as far as I can tell. How about you? I mean, I know this is difficult on you. How are you doing? I mean, this is such. It's got to be a lot of uh, emotions going on for you. Um, you know, people have been really helpful and supportive. So it's been uh, it's been really hard, but. You know, you just keep going. What, what can you tell us about that night? I mean, uh, from what we understand, you went camping and then came home. Well, tell us what, what happened that night. Yeah, I just, I've, a lot of times I just go camping with my boys. You know, not, not anything big. I just go overnight and, you know, we do s'mores and stuff like that. And so I just went with the boys. I was planning to do some s'mores in the morning and um, then we did. And then when we got home, um, well, on the way home, I found out that people were worried about us and we were missing. 
And and um, the report is is that neither you nor your wife called in sick. And they said that that's not usual. What what are your thoughts on that? Um, no, it's it's not usual. I. Um, I guess why didn't you call in sick? You know, I I didn't. Uh, I was somehow thinking that it was Sunday. I, I didn't go to church, and I I just missed a day, and thought, oh, come back Sunday. So you got confused by the on what day it was. Yeah. Um, now, from what we understand, there's nothing. Uh, there's looks like no foul play in the home. It appears that your wife left her. Uh, cell phone and purse. I mean, do you have any idea? I mean, does she does she go off to sort of maybe clear her head? I mean, do you have any idea where she could be? No, she. I mean, she, she'll leave during the day, and but she's never left overnight. Does she have any enemies that you can think of that would? I don't. I can't think of anyone. Now, a lot of talk on the internet. I mean, a lot of, obviously in cases like this, and you know this, that, that, that they instantly talk about the husband. They think that he's the suspect, that he did something. Is there anything you want to say to address that? Um, I, I didn't do anything. I mean, I, I don't know where she's at. I, I don't even know where to start looking. And the boys, I mean, do, how do you, what do you tell them about them? I haven't told them anything. I mean, they've overheard stuff, but I haven't, I mean, by the time it all started, I, I was already, uh, you know, it was already late and went to bed. Well, you've been like dick ever since. Now, your wife laid down that night, right? She wasn't feeling well, is that? And then you just, and that's when you, you went camping, right? Where, where'd you guys go camping? Well, she, she wasn't not feeling well. She was feeling well. Um, but she just went to bed. About five-ish, is that what we heard? We heard five. I don't know if that's true. You, you would know better than we would. Well, no, she went to bed that night. Um, and what time did you go camping, would you say? Um, I... You know, I, I got out to a pretty late start. Nine-ish? No, it was, it was later. Okay. Um, basically, um, I'm just trying to, trying to figure out what I can do and both try to find her and try to take care of life in general. Uh, where do you where do you guys camp? Um, we went down south to the to some trails down there. Do you mean like Moab area? No, no. We, um, we actually just went down to the um, the Pony Express. Pony Express Trail. Yeah. Okay. Are there campgrounds down there? Uh, yeah, I guess there's a the area, area, so. But I guess I better go. Okay. Well, good luck to you. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Huh. 
no call outs for Susan to come home, no concern over his missing wife, and no word on where exactly he was camping. A few days after that interview, he skipped his third meeting with the police. On December 17th, he withdrew the money from Susan's IRA accounts, and the next day, he took his two sons to his father's house in Puyallup, Washington. Police did learn something interesting about Josh's last impromptu road trip, though. During the same time he was gone with the rental car, his father, Stephen, took two days off work for what he said was a family emergency. In the Oxygen special about this case called The Disappearance of Susan Powell, the lead detective pointed out a strange coincidence. There was no phone activity from his father's cell phone during the time Josh was gone. And Stephen Powell wasn't the only other person in Josh's family with a connection to this case. Police think Josh's younger brother, Michael, may also have been involved in some way. Two weeks after Susan disappeared, Michael sold his perfectly good car for scrap at a junkyard in Oregon. When police searched it with cadaver dogs, they alerted on the trunk. But DNA tests were inconclusive and they couldn't say for sure if Susan's remains had been there. But when they questioned him, he said his father, Stephen, was his alibi. And when they surprised him with the fact that they'd found his car and searched it, he got very nervous and refused to answer any more questions. A month after Susan went missing, Josh and Michael rolled back into West Valley City, packed up his house, and told the neighbors they were moving in with his father. On the one-year anniversary of Susan's disappearance, Josh and his father decided to start blaming all of it on Susan. Oh, yeah, we believe that. We believe she's alive. We believe she left with somebody. We're not sure if she's still with that somebody, but I don't know. She probably is. In fact, they claimed she ran away to Brazil with a man named Stephen Kocher. They landed on that guy's name because he bizarrely went missing in Nevada around the same time as Susan. He was a member of the Mormon church, like she was, and the circumstances in which he disappeared are also very strange. But there is absolutely zero evidence that Susan and Stephen ever even knew each other, of course. Seven months after that announcement, Josh and his dad announced they were going to start publishing Susan's teenage diaries online to prove that she ran off with another man. Well, that announcement sparked some intense friction between them and Susan's parents, and ultimately they each got restraining orders against each other. But in the end, Susan's parents had the last word because police used Stephen and Josh's plan to publish those journals as an excuse to search Stephen's house. And that's when they discovered those thousands of stalker-like photos and videos that Stephen had taken of Susan, the ones I told you about earlier. They found more than, this is unbelievable, 50 songs that he wrote about her. And they found his journals with statements like, My biggest problem, as well as my greatest pleasure, lies in the fact that for over a year, I have been madly in love with my daughter-in-law, Susan. The fact is, I can hardly control myself when it comes to her. Control was a big problem for Stephen, and not just when it came to Susan. There were dozens of computer disks with X-rated pictures and videos of other women and girls as young as 6 and 10 years old, daughters of his former neighbor. He'd been secretly taking pictures of them from his windows while they used the bathroom. He was arrested for voyeurism and possession of child pornography in November 2011. 
And that's when Susan's parents saw their chance to get their grandkids out of Josh's hands and out of Stephen's house. Washington State awarded them temporary custody. Josh had supervised visits. Then, in early 2012, it was revealed that 400 images of cartoon pornography were found in the search and seizure on Josh's house three years earlier, after Susan went missing. And we're talking pretty graphic stuff, apparently, including images of incest and bestiality. And when child services heard that, they told Josh he'd need to take a polygraph test and a psychosexual evaluation before he'd have a prayer of getting his kids back. But, and this is the biggest but ever, he was still allowed supervised visitation. Four days after that ruling, a caseworker brought Charlie and Brayden over for a visit. The boys ran ahead of her into the house. She said Josh met her eyes, shrugged sheepishly, smiled, then slammed the door in her face and locked her out. While she was pounding on the door, she heard him tell the boys to lay face down because he had a surprise for them. And then she heard them scream. She smelled gasoline and she knew something was horribly wrong. She ran away from the house and called 911. Now, for the sake of time, I won't play the call for you here, but let's just say it wasn't an easy conversation. Logs show it took eight minutes for the 911 dispatcher to send a police car and another 13 minutes for them to get to the scene. So by that time, the house was already on fire. The 911 operator said later, no one could have predicted what happened. But you know what? I have to disagree because you know who could have predicted what happened? The effing caseworker who was trying to get the dispatcher to understand what was about to happen. A hatchet was laying near the boys' bodies and chopping marks were found on their heads and necks. Josh poured gasoline all over the house and on their bodies, then sat on a gas can and lit the place on fire. That was February 5th, 2012. And it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. Two months before the murder-suicide, he changed the beneficiaries on his life insurance policy so that 93% of it would go to his brother, Michael. Two days before the murders, he gave his son's toys away and he took out cash to buy the gasoline. Minutes before the fire, he sent emails to his family and lawyer saying, I'm sorry, goodbye. He told them where to find his money and how to shut off his utilities. One of his last calls was to his sister. He left her a voicemail saying, This is Josh. I'm calling to say goodbye. I am not able to live without my sons, and I'm not able to go on anymore. I'm sorry to everyone I've hurt. Goodbye. Unfortunately, he didn't leave any information about where her family could find Susan's body. So, investigators turned their attention to the one person left who they believed did know something about what happened to Susan, Josh's brother, Michael. But before they could get any information out of him, a year after his brother murdered his nephews, Michael jumped off the roof of the parking garage at his apartment building in Minneapolis and died. Stephen Powell got out of prison in July 2017. He died of heart failure a year later. Over the years, police have searched more than 400 areas looking for Susan. They've been able to crack all of Josh's encrypted hard drives except one. It's possible that the answers to her disappearance are somewhere in that data. The Cox family won a wrongful death lawsuit against the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services in November 2020. They were awarded $32 million for their grandson's murders. 
What a tragic case, right? It's just like one sad turn of events after another. Yeah, it's terrible. And what a strange coincidence about that man, Steve Kocher. Mm-hmm. What was that all about? Yeah, that is a really strange story too. So Stephen Kocher was a journalist between jobs. He's living in St. George, Utah. Mm-hmm. That's about four hours away from where the Powells were living in West Valley City. Mm, So Stephen had been having a lot of money troubles, um, but according to his parents, he was upbeat. He was positive that he was going to be able to get another job soon. But his car was abandoned in a retirement community in Henderson, Nevada. That's near Vegas, and it's like 150 miles away from where he lived. Yeah. As far as they knew, they didn't. he didn't know anyone there, but the last time anyone saw him was on a security camera walking up the street away from his car as if he was on his way to meet somebody. They went through his phone, hmm. his all of his communication, his apartment, Everything with a fine-tooth comb, and they could never find anything, um, any reason why he disappeared or why he was even in that town on December 13th, 2009. That's crazy. I mean, what a, what a strange coincidence. No, it's absolutely bizarre. Wow. Well, I have a story about another woman that disappeared without a trace. Jeez. Okay, let's hear it. Recap number two. Take it away. All right. I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. Phoenix Colden's mother last saw her after church on December 18th, 2011. She was sitting in her black Chevy Blazer in the driveway outside their house in Spanish Lake, Missouri. It wasn't unusual for her to see Phoenix sitting in the Blazer, talking on the phone. Around 2.20 that day, her father saw her drive away. He figured she was going to the store or to a friend's house. They didn't worry. But hours went by and she never came home. That wasn't normal for the 23-year-old responsible daughter, their only child. When dozens of frantic phone calls gave them no leads about where she might be, her mom reported her missing. All she could think was that one minute she was there, the next minute she was gone. On January 2nd, they got news about their daughter's Chevy Blazer. According to her family and multiple news reports, it was found around 5.27 p.m. on the same night she disappeared. The keys were in the ignition with the engine running, and the driver's door was open. It was left in the middle of the street in East St. Louis, an area about 25 minutes away from their house, a neighborhood considered to be a hotspot for sex traffickers. Despite the incredibly bizarre way it was abandoned, the police didn't call the registered owner, which would have been her mother in this case. Instead, they just towed it to an impound lot. That's where her family came across it while searching for her. But was the SUV really found the way they thought? According to a 2018 investigation the Oxygen Channel did for a two-part episode called, fittingly, The Disappearance of Phoenix Colden, it quickly became clear that this case was not what it seemed, starting with her abandoned SUV. According to an interview Oxygen did with the first officer on the scene that day, her car was not running, and the door was not opened. It was locked. In his words... It appeared to be an ordinary abandoned vehicle. When her family picked up the car, they found Phoenix's glasses, her shoes, and her driver's license. And there was something else of hers in the car that came as a shock. A bill for a cell phone that wasn't part of their family plan. Clearly, the quiet, deeply religious girl had secrets her family and friends didn't know about. Phoenix had recently moved home. Her parents thought she'd been living in an apartment with a girlfriend. They'd even signed the lease for her, but 
After she went missing, they learned that she had actually been living with a boyfriend. They tried getting in touch with him to find out what he knew about her disappearance, but he didn't return their calls. The police say he's not a suspect, so why wouldn't he agree to talk to her parents? And he wasn't the only one refusing to talk. They discovered that she was dating another man at the same time. He worked at a cell phone store and gave her a burner phone she used to contact him. He wouldn't talk to her parents either. They also found out she wasn't going to classes at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where she was supposed to be a junior. In fact, unbeknownst to them, she didn't even enroll in school that fall. So what was she doing when she was supposed to be in class? Like everything else in this case, that's still a mystery. The girl they knew was a well-liked athlete. She was a local fencing champion. She was intelligent and responsible. She played the piano and was active in the handbell choir at church. And she may have disappeared in a way that's chillingly similar to another woman her age. A woman around the same age as Phoenix was snatched out of her car while she was stopped at a light in the same area in East St. Louis. Her car was left running in the road. She was taken to a house where she was drugged, beaten, and gang-raped. They were trying to force her into sex work for them, but she managed to get away when one of her kidnappers passed out, according to an article in the Huffington Post. If Phoenix's car had been left open and running the way her parents understood it to be, then the similarities between these two cases is horrifying. By May 2012, her father was spending every day searching for her in abandoned buildings and on the streets of St. Louis. They showed her picture to drug dealers and sex workers around East St. Louis, hoping someone had seen her. But no one said they had. Then, her mother got a strange phone call about a month after she disappeared. She swears the woman on the phone was Phoenix calling from a California area code. But she hung up before she could get any information. Police say it was probably just a prank. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of cruel pranks in this case. There was also a tip from a man in Texas claiming to know where Phoenix was. The details he gave were so convincing that her parents spent the last of their savings to hire an investigator to go to Texas and chase it all down. But it was all just a lie. In a sick, twisted play for attention, their tips are admitted he'd made it all up. He had no idea where their daughter was. And after that, they struggled to pay their mortgage, and their house slipped into foreclosure. The Oxygen Channel came up with three theories about what might have happened to her. Just like the other woman her age who was kidnapped from her car in the same area in East St. Louis, it's possible that Phoenix was abducted by a sex trafficking ring. After she went missing, there was no activity on her social media, bank card, or cell phone. It all just went silent. But her body has never been found. And not surprisingly, the police aren't discounting the theory that she simply ran away. As strange as that probably sounds to you, considering her SUV was found in the middle of the road with the engine running and her shoes, purse, and license were left behind, it's not completely out of the question. Apparently, Phoenix had two birth certificates, one for her as Phoenix Colden and the other under the name Phoenix Reeves, which is her mother's maiden name. At the time of this investigation in 2018, there were four Phoenix Reeves living in the United States. Three of them were cleared, but the fourth is a different story. That person was living in Alaska, but had no date of birth, social security number, or known relatives. Only an address from January 2012 to June 2012. 
As a reminder, Phoenix disappeared in December 2011. When they followed up on the address, they found out that the same person had been living there since 2002, and they didn't know Phoenix. No one in the neighborhood recognized her picture either. And finally, Oxygen uncovered a video Phoenix made about a month before she went missing. In it, she talks about wanting to start over, but feeling like the new her can't do that. She can be seen praying, asking God to help her accept the things that won't change and not to change the things that she can't change, which sounds very similar to the Alcoholics Anonymous prayer. But as far as anyone knew, she wasn't an addict. And if she did run away almost 10 years ago, would she really have been able to stay so far off the grid for so long? without any contact with her friends and family? Her family doesn't believe it. What about you? Thanks for letting us catch you up on this truly strange case. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, please take a second to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. And let us know what you think in the comments. Until next time, take care.